0: I, this last summer, I read Huck Finn, Huckleberry Finn. I say Huck Finn because I watched that movie from the 90s, and that's what the movie was called, but Huckleberry Finn. And one of the more memorable portions is the family feud portion when they get to the Shepherdsons field. And I, they, they get there, and there's this horrible shootout at the end of that chapter, and so many people die. We're men, children, it's awful. Um, and I was like, thank God that doesn't happen today. And then I read this news story. Check this out. So, run love with thy neighbor. Remember that. So, first page here. Oh, just right after that. There we go. Boom. I read this story. The biggest neighbor feud in New York. Uh, they, everyone in their neighborhood is sick of these two. So I'll tell you a little bit of what's going on here. Uh, they hate each other. It started with a property line dispute. I'm guessing it's that six inches between the neighbor's fence and the other neighbor's fence. Like, who is it really supposed to go to? So they start getting in a fight. This one's saying, oh, you're driving too fast. The guy in the blue house started throwing peanuts over the fence to get squirrels. Check this out. To get all the squirrels, there's a photo of one. All the squirrels into the other neighbor's yard to start pooping on everything and eating out of all their bird feeders. Then he put bird feeders on the fence to get the birds to poop on the other house. Like, this is weird. Like, people used to get their muskets, and now it's like that horror movie, Willard, where they train the rats to do their bidding for vengeance. The, uh, so the, it goes back and forth. So then uh, the person next door puts this up. Severe peanut allergy. They're like, they're like, my distant family member who never comes over could die because of one of your peanuts. Um, and, I, and actually, uh, is this my last photo? I think it is. Oh, there's one more? What do I got? Oh, yeah, then they put this sign up. <laughs> Worst neighbor ever lives right here. So this news story, they interview all these people, like, yeah, we're all sick of it. I don't know why they got to fight and air it all out in front of all of us. The whole neighborhood is tired of these people. And the police have been called to those properties 70 times. Like they went 10 times and then 60 more times. 70 times the police have responded to that property. I would imagine if they, if those two attended our church first, like they would be here and the other would be here. Um, but they would hate today <laughs> uh, because they would... Uh, they they would not like it because they would think this whole time I'm giving this message about love thy neighbor, they're like, surely not them. Yes, them. Yes, your enemies. That's kind of where the, where the, the master level class of love thy neighbor goes is the call to love your enemies. I've had good neighbors and I've had bad ones, like literal neighbors, like good ones and bad ones, ones that are considerate, You know, I'll be out of town. They know my schedule. They're like, oh, I don't want Porch Pirates to get Sam's stuff. So they'll text me, hey, threw your stuff in the garage. Let me know when you get here. Super great. Other ones that, you know, work on their motorcycle at 3 in the morning. Um, We've had all kinds of neighbors, and yet we're all called to love them all. And I want to, before we go any further, it's also important to remember that when the biblical definition of neighbor, especially that word in Greek when Jesus says, you know, love your neighbor as yourself, neighbor means your near ones. It's not just the person whose who's fence shares a uh, property line with you. It is anyone who's near, anyone near enough for you to impact, to, uh, to, to affect in any way. We can affect everyone's day. From the people we see in the store, our interactions with them. I mean, I, I'm sure you have had a time when you've had an interaction with a stranger that's made or wrecked a day. It, it can be that powerful. Our near ones have an impact on us, and we're called to love all our near ones even the ones we wish weren't so near. I want to uh, read where Christ talks about loving our neighbors. This is the, the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be in Matthew 5. We're going to start in 43. It says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Because uh, he causes the sun to rise on the evil and good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are you not, uh, are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Super easy Sunday, we're gonna get perfect and then we're gonna go. Uh What's interesting is that uh, the command, uh, love your neighbor, uh, which he begins with, you've heard love your neighbor, hate your enemy, uh, that, uh, that actually begins in a similar way that this ends. Chapter 19, that portion of all of the, of the social laws of how people interact with each other begins with be holy. This is in Leviticus 19, be holy because I am holy. And the end of that discourse ends with love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, and so there's this sense of of uh, God's nature reflected that we expose his foreign nature to this world through our daily living the way that we would be people would say that's different perhaps this God that they worship is different but this often means that God is going to ask us to act counter-culturally because loving your neighbor is extremely countercultural. I can think of a culture in the world that that's a norm I mean even in the church we struggle with that one and it's supposed to be our culture But you know what's interesting? You know what's not in Leviticus 19? Nowhere to be found? It never says, hate your enemies. Anywhere. So Jesus is not saying that, okay, you've heard it said, and he's quoting old law. He's saying, you've heard it said, but the Bible never really meant that. The Bible never really said that. People can take passages and twist them to justify getting out of the countercultural call that we've got to say, well, I don't really have to do it. I found this perfect verse. In fact, we find that the the Pharisees and rabbis, they did, and they would use passages like this. This is Psalms 139, says, "Uh, do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them as my enemies. You read something like that, and it seems like Uh, you could easily misconstrue that and say that you're supposed to, as you can clearly see, God says, love your neighbors, but then there's hate prescribed to someone. And as I'm reading, it says enemies. Um, And this is why reading all of scripture, understanding context, understanding what the authors really meant and what the point of that passage was is so critical because no one theological concept can be defended with one Bible verse. You have to look at it as a whole. Nothing can be clearly seen as just what it is at face value, particularly because, and this is important for us to remember, Americans are literal. When we say something, we mean exactly what we said. Often we don't speak in much hyperbole, but they did. So they would say things that were extreme to let you know I really feel it. But if you were to take it literal, it was extreme. And we would find that if we were to, and the rabbis would have found this too, that if they studied scripture as a whole, just giving them the Old Testament, what they had to work with, they would find that this is not a proper way to interpret the law at all. For instance, Exodus 23 says, uh, if you come across your enemy's ox or donkey, your enemy's ox or donkey, wandering off, be sure to return it. If you see a donkey, if someone who hates you has fallen under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure to help them with it. You have to look at things as a whole and when we look at this we see there's a very clear command of how to treat your enemies and there is a moment where someone in a psalm gives an extremely unvarnished human prayer exposure to God of how they're feeling and so we find that people can twist and manipulate you have to understand things as a whole even Jesus when asked what's the greatest commandment took two verses from totally different books of the Bible from Deuteronomy, he takes love your neighbor, or love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And then he takes from Leviticus and love your neighbor as yourself. You take these two passages that gives you a fuller vision of what God has, triangulates his will, what he really meant, and we can understand it. The bigger, all those little points come together to create a whole message. And I guess the point is, I feel is, is one of my first warnings when we look at this and we see, you have heard it said, hate. Your enemies, and where they get this interpretation is: be warned, because crafty people will use a few proof texts to defend their way of life when it's wrong. And they'll be most tempted to do it when it means they don't have to act like everybody else. When they get to act like everybody else, excuse me, we're asked to do things that are extremely countercultural: get struck in the face, turn the other cheek, love your neighbor, or love your neighbors yourself, love your enemies as yourself. These are these are things that are difficult. I can understand why Jesus would say. Be perfect as God is perfect because these are hard commands. We should be careful that when we interpret Scripture, we look at the whole picture and we trust people who look at the whole picture. God isn't like everyone else. Jesus said in that first passage in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on good and evil and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. There's this beautiful picture of God's sovereignty working through agriculture. That across the world, God sends sunshine and rain. And there was this deep understanding that God covered the world in its fertility and cares for people. Things can be taken from us like that. The things that we think are so stable, we realize they really aren't. And that was one of the things that there was, they talked a lot about anxiety that happened to kids that were just getting into school when COVID came on for two years. It was like school is always happening. It's always happening in the fall. You're always there. And everything was off the table. And it's created this level of anxiety because they've now clicked with something that is unfortunately very true. Nothing is set in stone. Things can shift, things can change, and seasons can shift and change. And God is the one who still brings consistency, brings the rainfall, brings the sunshine, and feeds the world. God did this for both the saved and the unsaved. His loving sovereignty was for all of them, not just those that were specifically his children. And as hard as the pill as it is for us to swallow, there was no drought in Nazi Germany during World War II. God sent rain to their crops that that nation wouldn't die when it was up to everything that it was up to, that God would care for people. We counted as our enemies when they were our enemies. is always going to be something difficult. We sometimes think because we are heirs of of the kingdom that we have a monopoly on God's love, but he pours it out over the world like vines coming out of a garden and, and spreading into everything. His love, his compassion, his care is for all mankind. And that is the example we're supposed to take to ourselves and how we view other people. As much as we hate our enemies, we have to accept the hard pill that God is still God to them. God is still waiting to be merciful and God still loves them. God loves his enemies, he saves them, he brings them home. Just as you were once an enemy, saves you, brings you home. And we're supposed to mimic that behavior. That if we are the, the, the church of the God who loves his enemies, saves them and brings them home, something that we should be doing is loving our enemies, saving them and bringing them home to the kingdom of God. There's this idea that, that we would be just like everybody else if we don't act on this. If you love those who love you, he says, what reward? What reward will you get? Are you not? Uh, do not even tax collectors do that? And if you greet only your own people, uh, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? There's this question with the tax collectors: Is it love if you really just care for yourself? Tax collectors were famously corrupt. To corroborate with Rome was to be a traitor to the people. They were cast out of their own families. They were given no incentive to really be honest, and so dishonesty just breeded right out of them. And so they would typically tax you and then say you didn't pay your taxes and make you pay again, and they would keep the second one you paid. They did all kinds of things to be corrupt, and they found themselves on the outside. But as all outsiders are, like how people are in gangs when they become criminals, and on the outside there is this great... Uh, You could call it love for one another, fidelity, faithfulness to one another within that group and this cohort of thieves. They also receive and love each other, but they do so because they get something out of each other. They wouldn't love and care for someone they get nothing from. It's all a a return on investment sort of idea. They love those who uh, love them back. They didn't love the people who didn't love them, who cursed them, who said that they were corroborated with the enemy or charged them uh, fair taxes. There's a question for us of if you collect in your mind all the people that you show affection towards, do you ever show affection to someone that is never going to give you anything back? They can't give you anything back, can't give you recognition, wouldn't give back compassion. They might even flip you off as you're doing it. Would you still show compassion to them? And this lesson from Christ is that compassion is real when you would give it to both. It's not self-service, it's true love. The crux of the calling, I feel like, is really in comparison with the pagans. That Being like everyone else makes God out to be as dead as their false gods. The temples of Zeus and Apollos, people would come into those places and they were warmly received and greeted and blessed and brought in, but it was just for the people that belonged there. If we're going to show God as a living God, he would be extremely different. And it's interesting that when Jesus says this, he doesn't say, don't the Gentiles even do that? He specifically uses the word pagans. Because even though these words can seem synonymous, pagan would be anyone that worships not the God of Abraham, um, and that Gentile would be anyone who's not a descendant of Abraham. These seem familiar. Uh, Worship and lineage are what's highlighted in those two terms. If you're talking about Gentiles, you're referring to them more of their race. If you're referring to pagans, you're referring to their worship. There's this idea that God's, are reflected in the behavior of their people. That dead love, dead uh, welcoming, these are things that uh, reveal a dead God. God is not a God like men, he looks different, he sounds different, he is different. And we have to know this, greet just doesn't mean hello. It says, if you greet those that, that, you know, are you any different than them? Greet was uh, shalom. And when you when they would meet each other, they would they would actually proclaim a blessing over the other person of shalom. Shalom meant peace, wholeness, well-being. It was you would see someone and you would say, I hope that it all goes well for you today. Hope your sandals fit perfectly. Hope there's no swelling in your fingers. I hope that you that your water is cold and that your food is hot. I mean shalom meant everything. It was a, a, a desire for things to go well for you. And now we understand why that's so hard to give to somebody you hate. They say, I hope it goes well for you today. I hope that when you cut me off in traffic, that you get home safely to your family. And that your temper is subsided and that you're happy to see them. They're happy to see you. And you never pay for what you did to me today. This is what, what's being talked about. You could change out. If you greet those who greet you, you could say, if you bless those and wish well on those that wish well and bless you. That's what shalom means. To be forced to pronounce shalom on an enemy probably feels like those memories we have a kid when our parents would force us to hug after a fight, our, our siblings. The worst hug in the world. I would rather hug a cactus than my sibling I just fought with. And I've seen something I think is, tra- I, I, I shouldn't say that because maybe some of you have done it. I would never do this myself because it's just too mean. Have you guys seen the reconciliation t-shirt where they put two kids in the same t-shirt until they're done fighting? That's horrible if you did it. Mercy on you. I, I, I mean nothing against you. Uh, but who knowing, pr- knowing what to pray for your enemies can be hard. Because sometimes when we think of, okay, I'll pray for my enemies, we might think of things like, God, change their mind. Or set them right. Humble them. May you turn the squirrels back in their yard and send the peanuts straight into their front door. I mean, whatever your enemy would be, your enemy prayer would be. But there's this shocking thing that your enemy prayers would sound remarkably like your friendship prayers and your family prayers. Paul speaks more on this when he's uh, encouraging Timothy. He says, I urge you to Timothy, then first of all, that petitions, prayers, and intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. Now, all people defined, I, it doesn't mean that you would list literally every single person. In fact, I heard this really funny story from my sister, Emily. She's not here today to defend herself. Let's roast her, okay? When she was a kid, she would do these long prayers. She'd be like, I pray for mom, dad, Jake, Sam, Zach, Levi, grandma, grandpa, and it's a super long prayer, and she was doing it. It was like three days in a row. It's like her whole family. We have a huge family. It's ridiculous. I think... I counted one time, I think counting both sides, I'm into like the 40s nearly with cousins. It's crazy. So this is a long prayer. So she got, it, she got really tired on like day two or three and was like, God, I, I pray the same thing I prayed last night. And then she went to bed. <laughs> <laughs> and she said for weeks, she was like, I pray that prayer again. And then, <laughs> so handy. I didn't know we could do that. Um, luckily, that's not what Paul's talking about. He's not referring to you that you're going to need to pray for everybody in Ephesus. So get ready. Ready and get started as soon as you wake up um, because it's going to take a while. He's referring to who would be in this prayer, the types of people, all people. Not your friends, not your family alone. This is all people, everyone, everywhere. And there's three particular words as we pray for these people, so importantly highlighted, And because what's interesting is as he highlights it. He doesn't say pray for the church, pray for your family, pray for your friends. This is a, a very specific thing to do uh, that doesn't come naturally, to pray for the stranger, pray for everybody, pray for the leaders. And as he gives them this direction of what it means to pray for others, pray for all, pray for enemies, he uses these three words. He says petitions, prayers, and intercession. Petition's an interesting word. It comes down to the the, the insufficiency of the asker to the one they're asking. You can think of a picture of a peasant going before a king uh, or Nehemiah when he writes to uh, the king of Persia, if it pleases the king and if your servants found favor in your sight, that's sort of very humble, I'm not worthy to be asking this right now kind of idea. That's what petition means for people that aren't Christians, people that are um, different. I think it's amazing the, the heart that's reflected here, never the holier-than-thou prayer for people on the outside, or prayer for the lowly from the lowly, I think true prayers for our enemies—they uh, really happen when we see ourselves on equal ground with them. That's when we have true prayer, and it's not a matter of oh, fix that corrupted, terrible neighbor of mine. May his motorcycle explode this very hour. But praying for someone in a way that isn't greater than them, of God make them as high up as me or as well off as me, but coming and saying, Lord. I'm lost, they're lost, and I'm going to pray for them with this petitioning kind of attitude. And I think there's something, that if, we, if you want to pray for your enemies and reflect the heart of God, pray for them on equal grounding in your soul and in your mind, how you see them, not better than them. Intercession is another amazing word to be applied to this group because it's referring to ongoing, seeking, persistent prayer, contending for people that you do not care for. Not a gentle prayer of, oh, God, pray that you be fine, whatever. But to champion them in prayer. Thinking of them often, praying, you know they're going to the job interview, you know they've had a hard time or something, and just praying and championing them the way you would your very best friend, the way you would your own child. This tells us what kind of shalom we're supposed to declare on people in Christ's teaching. It's not a, eh, shalom, but I, I actually really mean it. Shalom on you. I really mean it, I am engaged in this, in an inaccessory, standing in the gap, persistent, caring and concerning about my enemies kind of prayer. Not a soft prayer, not a short one. To contend for our enemies and don't let the hostilities make us indifferent to prayer. Prayer in those three words, the simplest of the lineup, it refers to a childlike expectation that the prayer will be answered. That word for prayers is this idea of a of a childlike faith and hope. Offered with the same faith that we do for others, not saying, I'm asking that they would be blessed, but I really hope it won't come true. But really applying the faith, really seeking for them the thing the way you would for someone else and expecting God. I'm I'm when I pray for this, it's as good as me just handing it to them. I mean, really, when, when when someone has done something that has been extremely offensive to pray that they would be blessed, you'd pray with the kind of faith of like, it's as if I'm really handing them the blessing. As if I had the kind of power to request it and you would actually listen, I'm going to pray with that kind of faith. Love should seep up from our prayers and into our hearts when we pray like that. When we pray with an idea of I'm really praying for this person, I truly and hopefully and hopefully really want this to happen for them, there's a love that, we, that for people that we do not love that can seep out of our prayers, and through praying for them, we find that we love them all the more Because we're connecting with God in that moment. And there's the, the most important, one of the, the most highlighted group of the others is political leaders, which I think is because that's not who we want to pray for. They're highlighted in there, the kings, the governors. To where he says, well, basically, Paul says, and pray for politicians, someone in the back. You have got to be kidding me. <laughs> this is Rome. This, isn't, this, this, this is worse than we have it. This is Rome. This is, uh, they are senators for life, and they can take your kids if they want them, Rome. And they're to pray for these people. There's an interesting thing about praying for Romans in Jewish history. and I find this fascinating. Um, most countries were forcibly conquered by Rome, just taken. Uh, Greece was that way, Alexandria was that way, Carthage. Uh, Israel initially actually joined willingly and then immediately rebelled and had to be conquered. They just didn't know how to get started right. So initially, they actually brokered a deal. They went to Rome and they were under the Seleucid Empire and they said, if we join you against the Seleucid, the Seleucid Empire, which was uh, a leftover of uh, Alexander's empire, so there were Greeks that lived in kind of the Eurasia area, they said, if we join you against them and help you conquer them and betray their empire, we will join Rome willingly under uh, a few conditions. And Rome was like, well, let's hear it. And they said, we'll do this. You need to allow us to practice our religion freely. So we want our religion to be legalized. Only the Roman religion was re- legalized, They said, so, which would be a huge thing for Rome to give. They said, that means that you need to not make us work on Saturdays. That was Sabbath day. They called it something different back then, but today it would be called Saturday. So you can't make us work on the Sabbath, and two, you cannot force us to worship your gods. And so they went back to Rome, and they debated. They said, okay, the Sabbath thing is weird, but you can have it. Um, And how about this? You don't have to sacrifice to the emperor, because they worship the emperor, but you can sacrifice to Yahweh on behalf of the emperor and pray for him in public. And they said, okay, that'll work. And so there is this this long history of, of Jews getting along with the Romans by providing sacrifices for Caesar in the temple and praying for Caesar's well-being. And it was a way of belonging and bringing peace. And I think that that gives us a little bit of an idea of Paul's heart here, that by praying for our local places, by not being drawn away, but actually caring and getting our hands into those problems and, and doing what we can to help uh, through our prayers, through being connected, we can create peace in the church that allows it to spread. In the same way that Israel was allowed to grow and to be Israel, and their and their faith was allowed to be uh, the powerhouse that it was, the only legalized religion outside the Roman religion, Christians are being asked to do something similar, though. And I think what's really important is that distinguish that distinguishment of: Are you sacrificing to the emperor, or are you sacrificing on behalf of the emperor? We can, there's there's a spot where our faith and politics, they do need to collide, and I know people get uncomfortable with that, but they are going to have to find a way to mesh in a healthy way, and there comes a point that we are either hoping and putting our prayers in an emperor or putting our hopes and prayers on behalf of that emperor, that we would be asking the king of kings to bless lower kings, a citizenship, in a sense, in both worlds, Way our faith and politics comes together must be motivated by reconciliation and peace, so we're behaving like children of the world and not children of God. We're supposed to be like God, holy because he's holy, perfect because he's perfect, be children of God as your father is, the father of this world. That we would, and everything we do in the way we pray about our the way that we're gonna vote, the way that we would interact with those that oppose us, that it would be based on reconciliation and peace. It's not easy for kings and governors. I would say they had it worse than even us. It would be really hard to pray for Caesar. It would be really hard to pray for Pontius Pilate. It would be really hard to pray for the senators that lived in Ephesus. And like for all, we pray for all. Absolutely everyone, it includes them too. And I was reading this, I was reflecting on... um, what would I pray if Mitch McConnell and, and Joe Biden were my grandfathers? Now, I, I, would, you, would, you, would you think of them the same way if they were your grandfathers? And I know what I'm saying right now assumes you have a good relationship with your grandfathers. I do. And so if they were my grandfathers and everything that's gone on with them, I'm, I'm sure it's been all over the news. Mitch McConnell froze twice in a speech, and it seemed that people are worried about him. People are, are mocking him. There's memes uh, making fun of him. People saying he's, just, he's a failure. They need to get rid of him. Joe Biden tripped, was it, three times in two weeks, and people have, saying that he's, he needs to get out, and there, there's a lot of ruthlessness about them, and I'm saying if they were my grandfathers, how would I pray for them? Would I not be praying that uh, God would watch over and protect Mitch McConnell, whatever is going on with him, whatever his health is, that he would be protected, that his dignity would be whole, and that whether he stays in office or leaves, that he wouldn't lose that dignity? Would I be praying that God keep my, my grandpa Joe safe, keep him safe. He's going up and down the stairs. I pray that he'd have the strength to finish whatever it is you've called him to finish and that he would be able to rest when this is done. But politics is so hard to pray through. And I think that's why, why Paul's wanting to highlight it is that we pray human prayers for human people, even if they're politicians. That we would pray for all people, pray for the blessing of them. That whether it is uh, Mitch or Joe, whatever would be harder for you to pray for, that you would pray for them as if they were your grandfathers in that place right now. With that kind of compassion, with that kind of mercy, with that kind of, I'm praying for holistic shalom blessing on a person who's in a political position who opposes my views. That it would go well for them, that they would have a good summer, good holiday break. I know it's hard. But then again, Jesus did say, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. You know, perfect in uh, that context and perfect in Greek, a lot of commentators believe that it could also be more accurately translated as be um, perfectly merciful as your heavenly father is perfectly merciful. Meaning that God is never—he's never merciful to one and then ruthless. He has—he's—he's he's fair and he's caring for all people. And the way that he is perfectly merciful to someone who loves him and someone who hates them, copy that behavior. I read a story um, about a, a woman named Carrie Ten Boom. She, was, uh, she survived a uh, Nazi concentration camp. She was a Jewish girl. Almost her entire family was killed. She was later converted to Christianity, and then she traveled the world teaching. And one of her favorite things she would teach on was the grace of Christ and his forgiveness, and it was grace was her, her big message. And after she was speaking one day, a German man came up to her and shook her hand with tears in his eyes and told her who he was. He was a guard in that concentration camp. And she's confronted with this, and this is the, the pain that she experienced living a portion of her life in this concentration camp, losing her family as forged who she is today. And it was an incredibly hard situation. And she said she was at such a desperate moment with him that she said, God, you're going to have to love him through me. And so she just prayed, and she felt this. She said it was one of the most transformative moments when she really connected with what the grace of God is, that there are times that you can't shine, and you need to let God shine through you for them. To say, God, would you, in, that, in this moment, would you gracefully love them? And then in herself feeling this, this breaking chains, forgiveness, love, and compassion break through as God moved through her for that person. There's times that you just can't shine, and you need God to shine through you. I think that's where we stand so often. To be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. We've got the whole Bible, as I said, to piece together what that means. There is nothing in there that makes me think there's an expectation that Christians are supposed to actually literally be perfect. We need grace every day. Paul was really clear about that. The whole message is clear. But we need to, as much as we can, be like God, be merciful like him and reflect him. Show him to the world as he is. And we know from that whole picture that he is a loving and merciful God who loves his enemies loves our enemies, and we're called to do the same. Our enemies are our neighbors, and we can change this world if we love them because it's really something nobody else does. It's extremely countercultural. So as we prepare to answer this calling today, I'll pray for us that the Lord could be with us as we do this to really love our enemies for their life, love, peace, and well-being. Lord, I pray today that as hard as it is, so many of us have a fixed enemy even in our mind that's been so hard to get around in this time. Lord, I pray that you could love them through us if we're not sufficient to do it yet. God, I pray that you could change our heart, that you could stir it and move it as we pray, as we pray with, uh, with petitions, Lord, as we pray with interceding for them, as we pray with hope that it will be answered, Lord, that those prayers would even begin to change our heart, that the closer we get to God, the more we reflect your nature. Since humanity, we're made like mirrors, Lord. The closer we draw to you, the more we bear your image. So, God, I pray that you could help us love those enemies as we pray and draw close to you. God, would you help us to act in a way that we could show compassion? And, Lord, I pray that you would rebuke that fear that says that if I, if I give in an inch, they'll take a mile. Lord, we just ask that you just be sovereign over the matter. That we could pray for their full well-being and protection and security. Lord, I pray for the division of politics that has gotten so far in that we've um, had a hard time even praying. Human prayers for human men and women. God, I pray that you would give us uh, mercy and compassion for all the names that go through our heads when when we're so frustrated with the way things are. Lord, you help us pray well for the party that we don't vote for. And for the politicians who oppose everything that we do, God, we pray for their wholeness and completeness and well-being. Help us to be reconcilers in this world. And Lord, help us uh, to be at such a place of peace and restoration in this world that the church should be allowed to spread broad and massive in growth, and that people would come to the light. Let it begin here. Let it begin with us as we love our enemies. We thank you, Lord. Amen.